So you said there are people in concentration camps in China who are making the solar panels. That's sort so of bad. Red flag, right? That's, <laughs> that's so bad. Really, there's three groups that should be blamed. There's the politicians, there's the news media, and then there's the activists. And they all kind of manipulate each other. People are going to die in Europe because energy is too expensive because governments in Europe have been funding concentration camps in China. Yes. Before we get started, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Rabbit Air. For people who suffer from them, living with allergies can range from mild to miserable. And in rare cases like mine, allergies can make your face look like you weigh 50 pounds more than you do. If you look at old podcasts from March last year and wonder why occasionally I look like a different person, it's because I'm so allergic to trees and the outdoors that my face swells. It's super cute. Thankfully, Rabbit Air's HEPA air purifiers filter out 99.97% of the allergens and pollutants from the air. It's always the perfect time to get one of these for your home office space or your bedroom or anywhere, really. A lot of people suffer from allergies without realizing it. So if you're someone who wakes up with a stuffy nose or you're congested all the time or you get colds and that turns into bronchitis, it could be because of allergies. Given we breathe in nearly 2,000 gallons of air, cleaning the air in your house can really reduce immune responses to allergens. If your kids are waking up with stuffy noses, allergies could be the issue as well. Uh, the filters have really helped me. I have one glowing in the back over there, and I like how they sound and look. They don't look nerdy like you're someone who's allergic to everything. They're cool, they're sleek, they're quiet. You can get your Rabbit Air air purifier today by going to rabbitair.com to see their models or call them 24 seven to speak to a Rabbit Air consultant. That's R-A-B-B-I-T-A-I-R.com. Enjoy this episode. Michael Schellenberger, welcome to my podcast. Thanks for having me, Michaela. I have been looking forward to speaking with you for quite a while, so I'm really glad you could come on. Um, before we get started, for anyone who's not familiar with you, can you give a brief background about who you are and what it is you do? Sure. I'm a, an author, a journalist. I'm also an advocate for uh, abundant energy. I've been an environmental advocate for 30 years. And I'm also, uh, in the last few years, I've become, advocate, I've become an advocate of, of expanding uh, drug and psychiatric care for people that are homeless and hmm. leading a, helping to lead a national, co uh, increasingly national coalition to address the addiction and psychiatric crisis in North America. Oh, interesting. Okay. I didn't know that you were interested in that. Okay. We could talk about that as well. Sure. What are you doing politically nowadays? Well, you may know that I ran for governor in California and I came in third, which was on the one hand, really exciting because that's more than any independent candidate had ever received as yeah. governor. We only had a three, we only ran, we were only, we got in super late, so we only had a three month long campaign, but also disappointing because we didn't make the runoff. And so we weren't able to fully kind of call the questions on the future of California, which is, you know, has a bunch of big issues around homelessness being maybe the biggest one, but also around energy and water. So I'm a political independent. I, uh, in, as a young man, I was on the radical left. I became, I've become more moderate, obviously, since then, but also have felt like the left has gone crazy um, over the last decade or so. So now I identify as, a, an, as an independent and I am not a member of any political party. Cool. So do you think the issues California is facing you think the major issue is homelessness? 
Well, if I had to really get to the bottom of it, I would say the main issue is nihilism. It's the, the, I think we're dealing with the consequences of people who are trying to do with their politics the what religion used to do, and they're doing so unknowingly. And so one of the, I just published a piece today where I described that, you know, people, you know, particularly Democrats, progressives, they say things that are just obviously false about climate change. They say that it's increasing natural disasters. It's not doing that. Natural disasters are actually going down because deaths from extreme weather events are going down. The cost of extreme weather events are going down. So the number of disasters is going down. They claim that they are, that, you know, renewables can power the world and that renewables are already cost effective or cheaper than existing power, even as they demand huge subsidies for renewables. So they're, you know, and sometimes it's deliberate. They know that they're being misleading, but other times I think they're just in the grip of a religion, but they don't think of it as a religion at all. They think they're just telling the truth. So I think that part of what is going on in California is that we're dealing with a very progressive state, a very progressive population that, you know, no longer believes in traditional religion. They've moved away from all of that, whether you know, Ju you know, Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, but they've ended up creating a new religion out of wokeism. And of wokeism, one of the sub-variants, of course, is apocalyptic environmentalism, but also it includes this obsession with race, this obsession with sexual identity. And so I would say that's the underlying problem, is that we keep undermining the bases of civilization out of this what I'm calling progressive nihilism. That also happens to be the name of the third book in this trilogy that I, I'm writing, which started with Apocalypse Never and then was San Francisco last year and will be progressive nihilism in 2024. Oh, that's that's exciting. Hopefully that'll help people. Uh, how much? So. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Well, San Francisco was very interesting. I enjoyed that a lot. I'd recommend that. That was fun. That was a great title too. Thank you. Can you describe a bit about what's going on in Europe in regards to energy? Because I think a lot of people here don't really understand the ramifications of increased energy prices or why the energy in prices increased in the first place. Sure. So Europe is in the worst energy crisis at least in 50 years, but maybe in its entire history. It made a decision, you know, 10, 20 years ago, the big countries did that they were going to reduce their reliance on nuclear power plants, also on coal plants, and they were going to rely more on natural gas imported from Russia and more on solar panels and wind turbines, mostly imported from China. And so what we saw is that Europe produced three times more natural gas than, than Russia did 15 years ago, but those numbers totally changed. And so Europe uh, now has become completely dependent on Russia for natural gas. There was already an energy crisis last year that was brewing, but it uh, has has worsened now because Russia, in retaliation for Europe's support of Ukraine, has has basically cut off almost all natural gas to Europe, and and the continent is supposed to shut off its its petroleum or oil imports as well. So you know, they, wow. there's a lot of people that say, well, Europe is going to be able to get through the winter. They've saved up enough natural gas. But that overlooks something really important, which is that they don't have enough natural gas to support the industries that depend on natural gas. And that includes things like aluminum, steel, glass, plastics, fertilizers. So the consequences are extremely serious, not mm -hmm. just for Europe. You know, Europe in Europe, about 70% of the fertilizer production has gone down. 
has is, sh is shut down. So they're only producing, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30% of the fertilizers they were producing. That means that we're just going to produce less food. And that means that there's going to be hunger. Estimated 350 million people are going to die of hunger related diseases this year. Those numbers are going to go up. It's going to only get worse over the next several years. We see that about half the steel production is shut down in Europe. So what's really happening that's terrifying, should be terrifying to people that care about Europe, is that they're deindustrializing. We're going to actually do really well in the United States and Canada because we have abundant oil and gas and abundant energy. And so a lot of those fertilizer, steel manufacturing companies are going to come from Europe and relocate into the United States. But those of us, anybody that cares about Europe should be very concerned about what's going on right now. And of course, Americans, we have an obligation, a treaty obligation to protect Europe in terms of national security. But if they don't have sufficient energy, then it, it creates all sorts of risks to them in terms of national security. So if there's a treaty obligation, then are we in some way obligated to provide natural gas? No, only uh, no. I mean, that's the that's the reason we're not. I mean, if it were, then we would be doing it, I presume. But no, I mean, it's more like, you know, Ukraine obviously was not part of the EU or part of NATO. So when Russia invaded the United States, you know, Europe and the United States didn't really have any basis to defend it. It ended up supporting it with arms. You know, the concern, of course, is that it would somehow entangle the United States or Europe. Um, in that war, and you sort of see Russia now threatening, making all sorts of threats because they've had some setbacks. Yeah. But it's more like, um, you know, it's more like the kind of thing you worry about is that Europe ends up in a situation like it was in before World War II, where you end up in a severe economic depression, you end up with hyperinflation, and you end up getting leaders in Europe who are very you know, scary and authoritarian who start to do things like, you know, deprive people of democracy. They start taking other measures that really um, undermine liberal democracy in Europe. Why aren't U.S. and Canada, why haven't they stepped in to provide natural gas to Europe? Like, I, I believe, I can't remember where I heard this from. I think it was my dad said that people had come to Trudeau. I don't remember if it was the chancellor of Germany, something like that, had come to Trudeau and said, hey, we're in deep trouble. Can you provide us natural gas? And Trudeau had just been like, no, the environment is at risk. Is that true? Yes, that's exactly what happened. So the chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, went to Canada I believe late last month and was begging for liquefied natural gas exports. You know, Canada is rich in natural gas, so is the United States. You know, there are there are genuine logistical challenges. It takes three years to build a gas liquef liquefaction terminal. That's a terminal that cools natural gas uh, to very low levels and that turns the gas into a liquid and then you can put it on a ship and send it to Europe. Oh. It takes a while to build those, but Europe, you know, Europe's in trouble for a while. So one, the, I think the, the obvious response would be for Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada and President Biden to say, yeah, we're going to expedite the production of liquefaction terminals. We're going to get them to Europe. We're all in this together. It's obviously also very good for the economies of Canada and the United States to be sending gas to Europe. And it's also good for the environment because without the natural gas, the Europeans are burning more coal, more diesel, more kerosene. They're also burning wood, which is the dirtiest fuel. So it's it's crazy. It's because both Trudeau and Biden are scared of upsetting their very progressive voting base. And so mm. that's why they're not doing it. But it's a, a sign of real political cowardice because they both have to know, both Trudeau and Biden have to know that they're really hurting Europe by not uh, stepping up by expanding gas production. Yeah. I mean, you just described why they should do it in like 25 seconds. 
you, you don't think like you'd think that that oh, could they be know. described to people. But I mean, just say like there are people's lives at risk here. Like even the progressive left, because they work on compassion, right? They could probably get behind. Hey, we need to do this for now because people are going to freeze to death. Can you not support that? They can't just say, well, no, we're, we're not supporting that. Not really. It doesn't make them look good. It's a strange situation. Well, you got it. And I think your point is well taken, that that the core value for the left is ostensibly compassion. Now, of course, the thing that's undermining that is this idea that climate change is an apocalyptic threat. And so if you think oh, yeah. that climate change is a world-ending threat, and you think that I mean, it's not rational. I think trying to we try to make it rational. But if you think that more gas production is going to lock us into the apocalypse, that's how they justify it. That's how the activists justify it. The politicians justify it because they're scared of the activists. They're scared of the voters. They're scared of the, the news media is completely bonkers. You know, if any, I mean, really, there's three groups that should be blamed. There's the politicians, there's the news media, and then there's the activists. Um, and they all kind of manipulate each other. But I do think the crisis is going to get so bad that you're going to see significant political change really everywhere, um, including mm. in North America, but also in Europe. And we just did. We've seen uh, conservative governments now come to power in Sweden and Italy. I think that's going to continue to happen. And so there's a way in which the contradictions are piling up and you're going to start to see the these anti-energy nihilistic behaviors start to uh, that people start, are going to start to self-destruct. Do you think this is correctable with the right government? For these European countries, or are these European countries really screwed? It's definitely correctable. I mean, it'll be hard. And I think that you saw the Italian, the the incoming new Italian prime minister, I believe her name is Maloney, striking a very conciliatory speech and also I think a very humble speech saying that she was going to, you know, they were all in this together and that this was going to be very difficult. That's the right posture to have. This is not a moment for a lot of swagger by anybody, but they just need to do everything they can to bring down energy prices. I mean, that's just the main event. So they are going to need to burn a lot of coal. They're going to need to import a lot of liquefied natural gas. They're going to need to keep their nuclear plants operating or restart the nuclear plants. Unfortunately, the opposite is happening in both Belgium and Germany. They're, they're continuing to shut down nuclear power plants, which is like insane. So there's just a lot that they're struggling, um, but there's a lot that they can do, you know, in the short term and medium term in particular. So that's, I think, but you're, you're asking the right question, like how much is Maloney really going to be able to do? I would say in the short term, it's going to be pretty difficult, but I think in the medium term, more like three to five years the right policies now will make a big difference. I remember growing up hearing how dangerous nuclear power was. I remember that that was just what I heard. It was I didn't know very much about it, but it was dangerous. It polluted a lot and it was a bad form of energy. How much of that narrative has caused the energy crisis that we're experiencing now? That's a good question. I would say I would I would attribute the war on nuclear to about half of the energy crisis and the other half to the war on natural gas. If Europe had made nuclear 70 or 80% of its electricity, it would definitely not be having this problem right now. Instead, and that's where it was headed after World War II. So in the 1950s, the United States was promoting nuclear to Europe. Europe needed it a lot more than we did. They knew that there was basically only two choices for them at the time, which was coal or nuclear. And they knew that coal was more polluting, so they wanted to have a lot of nuclear but then there was this war on nuclear that started with the baby boomers. They were working out the, the psychological trauma. 
of their fears of nuclear weapons to some extent, but then there were also just people that were uh. bad actors who were also just manipulating those fears because they are anti-civilization people. They're against modern civilization. They're against modern capitalism, modern liberal democracy. They want to return to some period in the past. Uh, like when? When everyone was dying of bacterial infections? Like when was this period? Yeah, I mean, it's not rational, right? I mean, it's Rousseau. It's this idea that things were better in the past before we had so much inequality. You know, it's certainly the stuff that you're, you and your dad you know, talk a lot about. So it's this kind of Rousseauian desire to return to a period before. It's nostalgic. It's sort of the mentality of coddled people. You know, it's sort of like, why, well, you know, like I think about a child. I think you're a mother, right, Michaela? Yeah, five-year-old. Okay, yeah. So when you, I always think it's like, you know, you think of your, you say to your child, you know, you can have mac and cheese or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And the kid goes, I don't want either of those. I'm not going to eat them. The proper response is to say, okay, you don't have to eat. Yeah. You know, the, the wrong response is to say, oh, well, we'll try to find some other thing, you know, whatever, I'll make you something else. Well, it's in that constant idea that somehow you don't have to make choices that you can, you know, that really the choices were... I mean, the choices for energy security in Europe were frack for natural gas, burn more coal, or have more nuclear. Well, they said they didn't want that. So they just imported all this gas from Russia, imagining that there would be no consequence, but there was a serious consequence. How is importing natural gas better for the climate than using natural gas that isn't imported from Russia? What difference does it make where it's from? Not much. Uh, piped natural gas has somewhat less carbon emissions because it's just coming. You don't have to ship it on a ship, which requires the diesel to run the ship, or you don't have to use energy to convert it into liquid and then and then regasify mm -hmm. it. So just one way to think of it is that every time you add an energy conversion, you're both adding cost and adding environmental, some amount of environmental degradation. So an energy conversion is just turning something from a gas into a liquid or taking electricity and putting it into a chemical battery or from a chemical battery to electricity. This is why in general, what you want is, is very few energy conversions and you want the cleanest form of energy high up the energy ladder. So wood and dung are the dirtiest. Coal is cleaner than wood and dung. Gas is half the carbon emissions and, you know, a small fraction of the air pollution. And then uranium is the cleanest, nuclear is the cleanest form of energy because it doesn't emit any pollution or any waste products into the natural environment. Huh. Okay. So let's talk more about um, these, I think you said solar panels and wind turbines from China? Yeah, some of the wind turbines um, are produced in Europe, but a lot of the materials are processed in China. China dominates the production of what are called rare earth minerals. Most of the minerals that are required for using renewables are processed in China. It's uh, lithium, copper, you know, uh, rare earths. Uh, so it, it, what you're doing, if you're trying to use less oil and gas in the United States or in Canada or in Europe, and you're going to then go try to use more solar and wind, you're just going to shift your dependency from Russia to China. There is talk of bringing those industries back to the United States, but I don't mm -hmm. think anybody thinks that you'll be able to be able to make solar panels at the same low price that they can in China, particularly since the solar panels are being made by Uyghur Muslims who are in concentration camps in China. It's, that what Europe shows is that you need to be energy, if not energy independent, you need to be energy secure. So Europe either needs to burn coal, it needs to frack for natural gas, or it needs to do a lot more nuclear power. 
naturally the leaders who created the crisis in the first place are not doing those things and they're proposing to just shift their dependency from russia to china in terms of going from natural gas to renewables you'd think not relying on russia or china would be the best option (laughs) the intuitive the intuitive sense is the correct one yes so you said there are people in concentration camps in china who are making the solar panels which Correct. should be okay so then <laughs> the fact <laughs> that's sort so of a bad flag, right that's, <laughs> that's so bad so by is that all solar panels is that solar panels in america too if you buy a solar panel yes. can you oh my yeah like 90 percent, like 90 percent of the solar panels that you get if you go down to home depot or if they come in and put them on your roof that's yeah that's what you're buying that's why <laughs> And this is a this is not by the way this is the U.S. State Department. It's the German Bundestag. It's BBC. There's not any debate that these solar panels are being made in those conditions. I myself, I just testified in front of Congress about a week ago, and I was raising this issue, and I was and I and I keep raising it with people because it's kind of like, what are we doing here? Like, <laughs> how do we how are we justifying this? The Biden administration said it was going to stop importing the solar panels, and then it just. It just got lobbied by the solar industry and just dropped it. And it was like, well, we'll just keep importing solar panels. Like kind of no explanation, no moral justification. For me, it's really uh, like a horror movie. You know, it's like you you kind of, the the horror movies, they open with, you you see the solar panels on your roof, you think they're clean, you think they're green, they're kind of magic. And then the more you learn about it, you get to that middle part of the horror movie and you realize they're being made by people that are, basically been enslaved and are living in concentration camps and working in solar factories is is really the only work they're allowed to have so it's pretty horrible there's no way to sugarcoat it for me it's like i just sometimes i just it's one of the issues that i just kind of despair a little bit over because it's it's very dark when you realize especially when you kind of people spend have said for decades that we were you know going to say no to genocide like genocide was not something that the west was going to tolerate that's obviously not the case because not only are we tolerating it we're actually financing it whenever we buy solar panels and lithium batteries too by the way they're all sourced from xinjiang province yeah let me say something else about it my some of my some of my friends they say well what about your iphone your iphone's made in china too there's a difference between products that are made in Guangzhou province in China, which is where your iPhones are made, and solar panels and batteries that are made in Xinjiang province. Guangzhou province, yeah, I mean, it's not great. It's still China. There's still facial recognition and creepy, you know, social points, uh, you know, totalitarianism. But that's not the same as being rounded up and put in a concentration camp. There's a qualitative difference there. And I think it's important to recognize that difference. So you could say, well, maybe we want to we want less dependence on China overall, but we should not be importing any solar panels from China at this point. I, I had heard about the solar panel. I didn't realize that it was all the solar panels, basically. Is there anyone else who makes solar panels? There are. There are some firms. There's actually a firm in California that does. They just can't compete yeah. in terms of cost. Of course. Yeah. But you said lithium batteries as well. So does that, what do you mean? And what, how do you avoid those? What, what are those in? Is that all lithium batteries? 
It's not totally clear. The best report actually was done by the New York Times to their credit. I criticized them a lot on the stuff, but they actually did a really good, they just came out with a big report about lithium batteries. Not totally clear. Um, so we're not totally sure. We do know that the raw materials for solar polysilicon, over 90% of it comes from Xinjiang province in China. So even places that might be making solar panels outside of Xinjiang province are still using the main ingredients. And I believe it's the same thing with lithium, so that the refining of the lithium is done in Xinjiang province, but it's probably, it could very well be a fair amount of it as well. A lot of the companies that make these products quite understandably try to keep it secret where their manufacturing facilities are in part because mm -hmm. they don't want the scrutiny on human rights and environmental issues. This is crazy. So people are going to die in Europe because energy is too expensive because governments in Europe have been funding concentration camps in China, basically. That simplifies yes. it, but basically, wow. Yeah, that's and bad. refusing and refusing. I think at the more, if you want to get to kind of the psychology of it, I think refusing to take responsibility for producing their own energy and sort of behaving like consumers. I think we're so used to being able to kind of buy whatever we want from other people, particularly from China, that there isn't a sense in which energy is sort of different. It's an important industrial activity. It's like farming. It's like producing steel. You need to actually do it in your home country precisely because it's so important. I mean, there's a set of folks, including some pretty otherwise very intelligent economists who kind of look at energy like it's some other commodity, you know, apples and bananas and cement and energy. It's like, well, no, but energy is different because everything depends on energy. So if you have an energy crisis, it affects every single sector of the economy, particularly the heavy industries that in places like Germany are how they are wealthy. The reason Germany is the wealthiest, most powerful country in Europe is because it has so much cheap energy to support its industries. Oh, yikes. Interesting. So there was too much virtue signaling, basically, from from Europe being like, yeah, we're at the forefront. We're going to be we're going to be the green people. And now people are going to freeze. Wow, that's terrible. So yeah, it's too much virtue signaling and also not enough <laughs> in the sense that I wish there had been virtue signaling about the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in Chinese solar factories. It's more like um, it's also the ways in which, you know, we've become so ideological and we've become so uh, disconnected. I mean, uh, Karl Marx, of all people, had a really brilliant chapter in his book Capital where he talked about something called commodity fetishism. And what he meant by that is that, you know, in the olden times, you used to know the guy that made your shoes or the guy who made your beef. Well, now the with, under capitalism, the supply chains are so disconnected that you don't know the people that made the things that you use. And so those products end up taking on a kind of, they end up taking on a kind of life of their own. That's what the fetish is. In other words, you sort of see the iPhone, but I use my iPhone and I have a relationship to my iPhone, but I never think about the people that made it. Mm -hmm. I never think about the working conditions. And so it's actually got gotten worse than that. It's not just you don't think about it, but you actually look at the solar panels and you think that you're saving the world. You don't think that you're contributing to genocide in China. And so it's really this deep disconnection by a lot of people, but particularly progressive elites, because they're the most disconnected from the productive sectors of the economy. When you talk to the working people, people who work in manufacturing, farming, energy, 
they're much more skeptical of the things that people claim about things like climate change or energy or, oh, farmers should just use organic fertilizer. People that are in the productive sectors of the economy are much more skeptical and much more likely to say, that's not actually true because I know how you produce food. I know how you produce steel. I know how you make products. And it's not like that. So I think that's part of the problem is that those of us that are that are kind of you know, what we call anywhere people, we're the, we're the global elites, we fly on airplanes, we never get our hands dirty. We're the ones that actually, um, are, they're the ones that are the most kind of delusional, apocalyptic about climate change, and also least realistic about what it takes to power a modern economy. This kind of sounds similar to people who are saying, well, shut down the beef industry, but they're not looking at, well, regenerative farms, for instance, and what that looks like. They're just saying, well, everyone should go plant-based. It's like, well, what is that going to do exactly? Yeah, the same thing is happening in the Netherlands right now. So I've been writing some stories about the Netherlands. The farmers are actually reduced nitrogen pollution, which mostly comes from manure, through basic farm practices and some amount of technological innovation. But for example, if you clean your barn stalls and you don't allow the manure, if you collect the manure <laughs> rather than letting it kind of run off or the liquids coming out and the liquids containing all the nitrogen runoff, if you just maintain your farm, you can reduce the nitrogen pollution by a significant amount. They already reduced it by 40%. Hmm. Well, the government, instead of promoting those techniques, the government has basically said, we need to have less livestock farming. We just need to have less cattle. And it's crazy because you can actually significantly reduce pollution of all kinds. I mean, you know, in, in the United States and Canada, really in all wealthy countries, we've massively reduced air pollution. You might see these old photos from like the 1940s where there was like smoke in the streets, the cars were so dirty. I mean, I just the other day I had a, a car pass by that had all the smoke coming out of its exhaust. And I was yeah. like, that's crazy, you know? Yeah. So things have changed, you know, so we're able to do so much with technological innovation. And when people are saying, no, you should just use less energy, you should stop driving, or you should not have any cows or livestock, you know that there's an alternative agenda going on, that it's not really about reducing pollution. It's using pollution as an excuse to advocate what is fundamentally an anti-civilization agenda. Okay, so that is what's going on. I mean, that's what my dad says. It's sad. That sounds pretty it sounds spot on, out there. On that issue. Yeah. Well, I mean, it looks like it. I, one of the things he taught me that I, I really like is if you can't figure out the reason somebody's doing something, look at the consequences, right? Of their behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. And then in, infer the cause, right? So, so you, yeah. So you go, so if we don't know why they're advocating renewables and shutting down the nuclear plants. We'll look at the energy crisis which is a crisis of civilization. It's a crisis that will result in people becoming poorer and deindustrializing. Now, it's interesting in this case, of course, um, we did know what they were doing because every Green Party in the world has been attacking industrialization, demonizing industrialization. I mean, listen to the way you know progressives and Greens talk about industrialization. They make mm -hmm. it sound like a bad word. Like somehow like life before industry was hunky-dory as opposed to being deeply brutal you know where women were subjugated to lives on the farm where kids were working on farms all the time life was hard and dark and so so yeah the the, the attack on industrialization is really an attack on modern civilization on the prosperity and the wealth and the freedom that they allow that it allows are companies already moving to the states? You said you thought companies like steel manufacturers are going to be moving to the states. Is that already happening? 
to some extent it is yes we saw when natural gas prices in the united states became very cheap starting around 2010 as a result of the fracking revolution then you start to see fertilizer companies in particular come back but we've seen manufacturing uh come back including coming back from places like china which is really great wow if you think that yeah if you think that the united states and north america and western liberal democracies are are significantly better at a moral level than china's totalitarian regime this is great news so what it means is that you want energy to be cheap not expensive it makes countries more secure it it makes us competitive with our rivals and and i think the other thing is that you saw in terms of natural gas i don't think i mentioned it but it's important to know that we reduced our carbon emissions in the united states by 22 percent between 2005 and 2020 Wow. Most of that reduction was by having cheap, abundant natural gas to replace dirtier coal. Okay. One thing you mentioned, and I'm just thinking about the ramifications, you said rare earth metals, that China controls most of the rare earth metals and that those are in our phones. So <laughs> that also seems seems like an issue, not exactly an energy issue, but does that mean if, if something happens between you know China and America relations that our phones are in jeopardy? Well, it's not just it's the phones, it's the solar panels, it's the um, it's the wind turbines, it's the batteries. Um, and it, and by the way, rare earths uh, is a set of minerals. They're not super oh, rare, not but they're very, or materials. They're super, um, they're just very dilute uh, in the earth's surface. So you just have to mine a lot of it in order to generate sufficient quantities of it. And you're gonna need a lot more of those, those materials and metals if you're going to uh, move to renewables. So that's the problem with it. I can, oh. I can get you the exact statistics, but basically um, the, the amount of those materials that you need if you're gonna use, uh, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna use renewables is so much higher. So just to give you a sense of it, solar and wind require 300% more copper, 700% more rare earths than natural gas per unit of energy, 1,000% more steel, concrete, and glass, 4,200% more lithium, 2,500% more graphite. And so this is a problem because hmm. I think the way to think about the way to think about nature protection is that you want to use less of it. If you want to save nature, then don't use it in your put it in your phones or in your products. And so you, what you want is a reduced material intensity or what we call you want dematerialization. And to some extent, things like your phones are very important to that because the phone replaces your old stereo console systems, cameras, yeah, television true. sets, newspapers, books, alarm clocks, like so many things you can imagine that used to be that your phone now replaces. So your phone is dematerializing all sorts of, of, of products but then energy also has a process of dematerialization. So when you go from coal, think about when you go from coal to natural gas, you're reducing the amount of the earth that you're using for energy. You're actually just pulling a gas out of the ground. It's already radically dematerialized. Or in the case of nuclear, a single Coke can of uranium can provide me with all the power I need for my entire life. It's a tiny amount of the earth. So anybody who loves nature who wants to protect nature should want to use less of it. And that means that you want to use more energy dense and less material intensive fuels. 
So going from natural gas or nuclear to solar panels and wind turbines and electric cars for that matter means you're just going to use much more of, of nature wow. and you're going to create these huge, frankly, toxic and polluting mines and all the waste that's associated with them around the world. Yeah. Okay. That's crazy. So they haven't taken into consideration the mining required for those materials to make these renewable energy sources like solar panels. That's not taken into consideration? Well, they, well hey, hey, this is a very important point. So for decades, people have been making this point. Finally, the International Energy Agency, which is the, uh, which is the kind of big energy think tank for rich and developed countries, the OECD countries, they came out with a report last year just that provided all those numbers that I just rattled off, pointing out, saying, well, to make this energy transition, which everyone thinks we're going to make, you're going to have to increase the materials. So the amount of materials per unit of energy is going to have to go from somewhere around 10% to somewhere around 50%. This is an agency that, by the way, is completely promoting renewables. And so they kind of said this, like, well, this is just something that's going to have to happen, as opposed to like, wait a second, is that something that we want to have happen? Because the alternative is that you could just use more natural gas and uranium and not have to increase the material intensity of energy. The other important thing about this is that Environmental progress, the good news is that economic progress and environmental progress go hand in hand. So if you're using less materials for energy, copper, rare earth, steel, zinc, all those things, then you are going to have a lower cost. So if you're using more materials, it's going to raise the cost of energy. It's going to be more material intensive. And so renewables make, make energy much more expensive in multiple ways. There's more materials required, much more land, three to 600 times more land for solar or wind farms than for a nuclear or natural gas plant. And then the unreliable nature of the electricity, the wind is in particular super random the way it comes into the grid and then stops blowing and it's just wind, right? Or even solar, like the sun sets, you know, at around the same time of day that people start using a lot of energy managing all of that unreliability increases the cost of energy. So we're really, um, renewables, which were sort of this romantic way to return to the past, are actually a way of, are, are in that sense that we were just talking about in terms of if you don't know the, the motivations of somebody, they are a way of undermining civilization, which depends on cheap and reliable energy. That's wild. Things are so much more complicated than we're told. Okay, for, for storing renewable energy, what kind of batteries is renewable energy stored in? So it's overwhelmingly, I mean, basically the only way to store large amounts of energy from an electrical grid is what we call pumped storage, which is that you pump the water uphill when you have a lot of electricity, like in a dam, and then you run the water back over a turbine when you need it. There's a nuclear plant in California that had that built this pumped hydro system uh, near it, it, you know, or along with it in California, so that when the when you had increases in demand, because of course the demand during the day rises at certain times of the day, you were able to have this pump storage facility. Everyone has gotten excited about lithium batteries, the same thing that's in your phone, but the problem is they're super expensive. So it's about a half a trillion dollars for just four hours of backing up the grid in the United States. The batteries wow. have, yeah. It's, it's 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 just financially impossible. California has been spending more money on batteries than anybody else in the really in the world, certainly in the United States. 
And we did not have enough batteries that would allow us to shut down our natural gas plants or shut down our last nuclear plant, which is why the governor in California, part of the reason why the governor in California kept our last nuclear plant operating, decided to. So we almost had blackouts again a few weeks ago, proving that even a huge investment in batteries was just not enough to be able to um, back up a, a state the size of California. Is it true that the governor of California at some point told people to stop charging their Teslas? Yeah, well, so <laughs> what happened was on August 25th, the state announced that they were gonna phase out internal combustion engines, gasoline powered engines, okay. gasoline powered cars by 2030. Five days later, the, the government said, don't charge your electric cars between 4 and 9 p.m. Otherwise, we're going to have blackouts. So we're clearly not prepared for being able to have all these cars be electric. Just to give you a sense of it, the, using the, the numbers provided by the state, we I calculated that you would need 10 full-sized new nuclear power plants in addition to the one that we have right now in order to just charge the 30 million cars and light trucks that you would that you would have if you completely transferred to electric cars and trucks. The other thing that they're doing, and again, I think this speaks to the irrationality and the nihilism, they're phasing out the sale of, of natural gas heaters in California and furnaces in California in 2030. So you won't be able to buy a natural gas heater for your home after 2030, either as a replacement or for a new home. Well, so that means that you're going to have to have an electric heater. And again, you're going to have this huge crisis. They're also been planning to shut down our last nuclear plant one year before then. So it's a combination of people are not thinking it through, but then also a combination of people they don't care. Like there's some part of them that, you know, as Michael Caine says to Batman, they just want to see the whole world burn. And then there are actually, there's some part of them, I think, that wants to see the chaos and the crisis because they think it's going to get us closer to returning to some state of nature. So you don't think that these are just people who aren't paying attention. I have this view of the world and it's slowly burning. <laughs> but my, I guess, previous view of the world was that big mistakes like this were made by people who were really trying to improve things, really trying to improve things. And they're saying, well, that doesn't matter. But the bigger goal is going to be such a great future that it, it doesn't matter. Right. And you're saying, well, no, there are people who are like, well, just let the let the world burn. And they're at the like top tier government level making decisions like let's shut down all the nuclear power plants. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's a little bit of both and sometimes in the same person. I mean, think about how sometimes when we're in a bad mood or when when we're um, annoyed at something, I we, we all do it. And I see I see people say it, it kind of goes I hear it from people like conservatives about Europe. It kind of goes, let them suffer. It kind of goes. They let them deal with the consequences of this. Well, that same thing on the left says, well, you should, why should you be able to use electricity whenever you want? What, what makes you think that you should have cheap energy, cheap electricity and energy? The world can't afford to have that. Nature can't afford for you to be such a privileged, entitled consumer. Um, you spoiled, you know, rich person. You should have to do with less because nature wants you to have less. And then in a, like a few hours later, or when they have to talk publicly, they'll say something like, well, it'll make us all happier because, um, you know, we'll work together to deal with these challenges. And, 
you know, money's not everything. And what about nature? So, you know, it's always a combination of both. It, it's like, you know, it's like, it's classic um, dark, some of it's dark triad stuff, you know, where there's a kind of, which is what narcissism, Machiavellianism and sociopathy. There's some amount of it, which is sort of like um, Kathy Bates and the movie Misery, you know, which is like, I'm going to take care of you. Yeah. You know? And it's like, hey, God, no, please <laughs> don't, you know. <laughs> How is fertilizer all wrapped up in this? And why is fertilizer so necessary? Yeah. Well, so there's there's three kinds of fertilizer, um, uh, phosphate, potash, and and nitrogen. And so nitrogen fertilizer is made from natural gas. And so uh, fertilizer okay. is... Yeah, so surf, so fertilizer is um, is is uh, nitrogen fixed nitrogen, basically taking the nitrogen gas and turning it into a solid that can be applied. So Miracle Grow that you put on your garden, so you put on. Your oh, that's crops. cool. So that is made from natural gas. Natural gas is CH four, so there's four hydrogen atoms bonded to a carbon atom, and so if you split the hydrogen atoms off and you fix them you make them into a solid then that's how you get fertilizer so if you have a shortage wow. of natural gas then you have a, a shortage of fertilizer why is that essential for modern food production and is that contributing to the food production crisis we're also seeing for sure yeah i mean so europe because of high energy prices uh Fertilizer production has declined between 70 to 80%. That's catastrophic. I mean, it's extremely scary and dangerous. And wow. Yeah. So it's um it's scary. It's bad. Um, I'm sorry, what was the, the oh, if you don't, I mean, just the the rule of thumb is that if we didn't have fertilizers, we would be able to produce just about half as much food as we produce now. So that means that we would have only enough uh, food for four billion people, not for eight billion people. So you may know, you know, um, that there's a very dark view that some environmentalists have, which is that the earth should not be able to sustain this many yeah. people. There's been a philosophy going back a couple hundred years that that mass famines are inevitable, but it's creepier than that because the people that claim that it's inevitable to have mass famine are the ones that are trying to reduce the amount of fertilizer that gets produced. So they're kind of trying to create, not kind of, they're, they're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy um, around fertilizer reductions. And so we just saw in Sri Lanka, the, the government under the advice of a lot of Western environmentalists said, well, we're gonna just ban synthetic fertilizer. And the result was crash of, you know, just they couldn't produce enough food for their people and the whole economy crashed and they ended up bringing down the government. <laughs> What what are your forecasts for the next year? I suppose in Europe, like, are they in trouble not just for a like a very cold winter, but also for food shortages? Like, really, places in Europe are? Yeah, I mean, as usual, the people that will suffer the most are the poor, both in Europe but around the world. So Europe, because it's rich, it's going to end up buying a lot of the liquefied natural gas that the world produces. And therefore, countries like Pakistan and Bangladesh won't be able to afford as much of that. Same thing with fertilizer yeah. and food. So you'll see the, you know, so it's like the crises will occur in places like Haiti, Sub-Saharan Africa, poor Asian countries. Oh. Europeans are going to 
like they're not going to starve and they're probably not going to freeze to death, but they're going to, but the Germans are almost certainly going to lose a bunch of their heavy industries. So they're just going to become a lot poorer. Okay. And that's going to occur not just now, but over several years, over the next three to five years, things are going to be bad because that's how long it's going to take to significantly increase energy production, either from natural gas or from, from nuclear or from coal. And by then, they're going to have lost a bunch of industries. And some industries are just going to be like, hey, we're out of here. We're going to go and relocate into the United States or into some other country where there's or Canada, where there's cheap and reliable energy. So that's the that's the concern. I think on a more optimistic note, you know, this is clearly a cycle. You know, we go through civilization goes through cycles. And this is clearly a crisis where a lot of people just forgot what it takes to run a civilization like you said i mean like i like we were talking about like most or, ordinary ordinary environmentalists they just say things that they don't even know what it means oh we can power the world on 100 renewables or oh we can use organics and they have no idea what that means and so what's happening is that people are having to deal with the consequences of their choices that were made in most cases out of misinformation but also out of ideology and I think that it's going to be a heavy wake-up call. You know, my my favorite slogan, or I don't have a slogan, my favorite saying these days is good times make weak leaders, weak leaders make bad times, and bad times make strong leaders, strong leaders make good times. Um, I think that's the cycle that we're in. We've got a bunch of yeah. weak leaders in power where they're just doing everything they're doing. Like literally in Europe, they're like, well, we're gonna just move to renewables faster. It's like, you are just delusional. So it's like everything they're doing is actually making the, and Biden and Trudeau and European leaders are basically making the crisis worse. So we're seeing a crisis of the West. It's interesting to me that already the Japanese and the South Koreans have moved on. And so one of the, the hypotheses, you know, not just me, but others, has been that the West is in the grip of a religion. It's very similar to the older Judeo-Christian religion. We've sinned against nature. Nature's a kind of victim god. Nature is punishing us with climate change. The only way to make right by nature is through renewables. Hmm. That's been the dominant ideology in the West for the last, you know, 30 years. But South Korea and Japan, they're like over it. They're restarting their nuclear plants. They're burning coal. Oh. They don't have that. They don't have that obsession. And I think it's because those are cultures that are in an and that have an ancestor that are focused on an ancestor myth rather than on a myth around a victim god. And so the victim god story, which has been dominant in the West for you know 2,000, 2,500 years, is um really been absent. So it's almost like we have a particular hardware that when belief in God disappeared, the new apocalyptic environmentalism and wokeism acted like soft like the new software for this our kind of hardware interesting in asia they didn't have that they were sort of spared that that problem and so they're just getting on with it they're trying to produce and they're going to end up doing a lot better than europe Hmm. okay that all makes sense to me um i've had a few other people on my podcast to talk about this and they've brought up you know food shortages in europe but it does make more sense to me that the people that would suffer would be would be the poor poor people that and then that's also going to be probably less picked up too by the media because it's a lot more of a boring story if a, a poor company has star uh, poor country has starving people than a you know 
you know, Germany or something like that. Yeah, they have to overthrow the governments in those countries for it to really become a big story. I mean, we will have famines. Um, and, you know, of course, some people will go hungry in Europe, but it just won't be anything like it is in other parts of the world where just because the Europeans, because it's still a global market and the Europeans are going to be able to compete with poor countries to purchase energy and food. I wanted to talk a bit about, you were, you, you were talking about addiction and homelessness. And so what kind of addiction have you seen that's causing this? Yeah, so we are in, and it's in the, it's in Canada too, we're in the worst drug epidemic in history. Uh, there's nothing that compares to it. To give you a sense of it, in the United States, 17,000 people died of drug overdoses and drug poisonings in the year 2000. This year, 107,000 will die. So we're going to see a huge increase, a five-fold, six-fold increase in deaths. Wow. That's three times more people than die in car accidents. It's five times more people than are killed by homicides. I believe it's about three times more than are killed, but that, that are commit suicide. It's the number one cause of death among people 18 to 45. It's indistinguishable from the mental health crisis in the West, the crisis of anxiety and depression. There's not any evidence that serious mental illness like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder have increased. So we're clearly dealing with just the worsening of anxiety and depression, which, you know, to some extent, everybody gets, but a, really a consequence of lack of purpose, which you might call nihilism. I think a consequence of these just really dark, dystopian and apocalyptic ideologies, just all the stuff that, you know, you and your dad are, are looking into and talking about. It's this kind of deaths of despair. The drugs themselves have gotten much harder, much more intoxicating, much more addictive, much deadlier. You know, there's San Francisco, it's hard to find heroin. It's all fentanyl now, fentanyl being 50 times stronger than heroin. Even cocaine has been displaced by methamphetamine and the forms of methamphetamine are even stronger and stronger. They keep finding new exotic drugs in that contaminate the drug supplies, things like anti-anxiety drugs they find we're getting various animal tranquilizers contaminating the drug supplies and so you have a drug epidemic and then you have a, just a kind of coddling attitude a victim ideology that is sort of the the one of the subsects of wokeism which says to victims everything should be given and nothing required and so that's how you get people, like if they're living on the street, living in their own excrement, dying of drugs or just in behaving in self-destructive and destructive ways, that's how you get progressive city governments, whether Vancouver or San Francisco or Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles, saying, oh, we don't want to do, you know, let them, just let them be. And I mean, there was a guy with schizophrenia, clearer, a guy that was behaving in psychotic ways, I'll say. We don't know if it's from schizophrenia because it could have been from meth, since long-term methamphetamine use results in, in psychotic behaviors. There was a story that went viral where he was, because the guy filmed, the guy was in his car and the, and the man on the street was threw his feces at him in the car, in the, in the SUV. The guy tries to get the police to arrest the guy and the police wouldn't do it. And the guy was like living on the street, throwing his feces at people. And, and they is were this, like, well, we're not going to arrest him. This is San Francisco or California? Los Angeles. Yeah, Los Angeles. So they finally got hmm. all this publicity. So they finally arrested him. 
And we were, I was watching it with my wife and I was like, they had this whole TV segment on it. And I was like, at some, I was like, how do you get through the whole TV segment? They don't talk about the fact that like this person is suffering mental illness or, or something that like, there's a sense in which, and it's like, they've made it, progressives have made it sort of taboo to even talk about the fact that people are living on the street because of their addiction, because of their mental illness, because they made it taboo because they kind of go, well, we don't want to stigmatize the people on the street, but as a result, the people on the street aren't getting the help they need. But obviously, it's not like the guy's throwing his feces at somebody because he's a bad guy. It's not like he's living on the street yeah, because yeah. he just like couldn't afford the rent. These are consequences of untreated mental illness and addiction. And so part of my work in writing San Francisco and in creating, you know, co-founding the California Peace Coalition, which is this coalition of parents of addicts, recovered addicts, you know, residents and others is to just kind of go, look, we're, this is obviously a problem of addiction and untreated mental illness, and we've got to stop treating it like a housing problem. We definitely need more housing. We need more housing everywhere, but that's not why people go live and sleep on cardboard or in tents on the street and smoke fentanyl all day. They're there because their drug habits or their psychosis has led them to, to stop working, alienate themselves from friends and family, and live on the streets. And there's been a kind of denial about it. Even more darkly, I would say there's progressives that have used these people to advance a, a completely ul you know, ulterior agenda around subsidized housing. I support some amount of subsidized housing. I'm not even against, you know, certainly for people that suffer mental illness, they need to be in subsidized housing. But you can't let people live on the street. We now know that three times more people who are homeless die if they live on the street than if they're in shelters and they die because they're run over by cars they're murdered and they die from drug overdoses so there's absolutely it's it's cruel not compassionate to let people live on the street so those two things you see homelessness and drugs are overlapping problems they're not exactly the same but it's the drug problem and the intravenous illness problem that's driving what we call homelessness are there more drugs available now is that what happened? Did the drugs come first, or do you think there, or do you think the need for them because of the rising anxiety, rising depression, did that come first, and now the drugs are there? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely more demand, and there's definitely more supply, okay. and they're definitely more addictive and more deadly. Like all three things are true. I mean, I'm very interested in Europe because Europe, it has this energy crisis, but it doesn't have the drug crisis. Like they're not having these drug overdose deaths in Netherlands or Portugal little increase in homelessness that you see, but a lot of that is from refugees or, you know, immigrants. Um, and it's nothing like we have in places like Vancouver, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland. And so I'm interested in what they've done in Europe. I mean, A, they have a proper psychiatric and addiction care system. They pressure yeah, they also, people. They also don't give out drugs the same way they do in America. Like the, if you just compare the dosing too for an anti-anxiety medication or an antidepressant in America, it's it's way higher than what they're allowed to do in Europe, which is very strange. Absolutely. I mean, I they never had the opioid over the prescription opioid crisis like we had. And when you ask them about it, it's because they they had much more of an attitude of like, you know, like like just just not prescribing that much. You know, when I went and I had an appendectomy a couple of years ago, or no, I guess I had it last year. And they 
they were like, here, you can take these opioids. You know, there's a prescription that they were going to give them to me. And I was like, do I need them? And they're like, well, you may not, but we're going to give them to you anyway. And I was like, well, why don't you just wait until the Advil stops working? There's just much more of that here than in Europe. In Europe, they're much stricter with it. And they're just much stricter on all these things. Mm-hmm. So I think that matters. I also think, though, that families are more intact in Europe. There's just people live closer to their families. Like if you're Dutch, yeah, you know, people can move and work all over Europe. But like, like I live in California, like people that are not from California, our families are hundreds or thousands of miles away. Yeah. And so Europe and Canada were so spread out that you have a normal, normal amounts of, of family disaffiliation that are much higher. And family disaffiliation or alienation from friends and family is just one of the key risk factors for drug addiction. So I think all of those things come in into the play in terms of why things got so bad here. I think also um, doctors aren't taught directly by pharmaceutical representatives like they are in the U.S. and Europe. Mm-hmm. That's a Absolutely. that's a big point. I like There's the family much regulation. Yeah. Yeah. There's much stricter I... regulation of pharmaceutical companies, which we should have. Yeah, interesting. I like that family. I I didn't think about that the way that families are structured in Europe. That if you have a bunch of people around you and then you start having a hard time with drugs, you have a bunch of people, siblings, cousin, aunt and uncle that are all like, what are you doing? Turn things around right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's sad. And they sort of, in Portugal, Portugal's most famous, but they sort of, they sort of, when they're dealing with someone that's an addict, they get the, they have a, they, they stage interventions with government officials so like you have family members plus like government social workers plus like a judge or police that are all like hey you gotta quit you gotta knock this stuff off and there's pressure put on you it's it's a really great model i don't know if it would work here you know we're very libertarian particularly in the united states but i suspect north america overall like people are very sensitive about not um saying anything about not having interventions unless it's really out of control we're very hands-off and and there's a lot of stigma and the stigma is sort of related to so you kind of get people that are like it actually works in these really funny ways where people are like they're both embarrassed by it and they don't want to deal with it and so then that's why you end up getting people living on the street or overdosing is that basically family and friends have kind of, they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to take the responsibility. Yeah. Wow. And when they try to, I've, you know, I've had three friends from high school that became uh, homeless drug addicts and two are dead and the oh. families struggle, you know, because they don't like on the one hand, like your, your, ch- your child is like stealing from you to maintain his or her drug habit. So do you cut them off knowing that they're going to end up on the street and engaged in sex work or theft to maintain their habit? Or do you let them stay at home where they're going to be constantly stealing from you and doing drugs in the, in the house? It's not an easy decision to make. And you need to have a societal response. You need to not allow people because of their drug habit to go be homeless. You just don't allow people that are sick with substance use disorder which is the politically correct term for for drug addiction you should not let people because they're sick live on the street and turn to prostitution or theft in order to maintain their habit the police should intervene yeah mandate that people mandate that people get the medical care that they need it's just a strange psychiatric illness and that it's a psychiatric disorder i should say that requires law enforcement 
there's not many other forms of psychiatric there's not that many other forms of of psychiatric you know problems that require the law the law to get involved but in the case of addiction it is required i think it i think it's tricky too i'm wondering if america and canada for that matter has more of an issue like you said because we had the opioid crisis so a bunch of people ended up on on opiates um but psych meds as well because we're one of the most over medicated or just medicated countries i think probably the most in the entire world in regards to psych medications and some of those are literally um i was I was on a, an antidepressant from the age of 12 to 23. Getting off of that, I didn't know it was addictive. Getting off of that almost killed me. Like really, it was, and I've like, which I was not something I was prepared for. I wasn't aware that it was causing dependency issues. And so I don't know what kind of role that has to play with just over-medication of an entire population. Huge, of course it does. Now, the good news is that your region of Alberta, which is like the Texas of Canada, has experienced <laughs> a, 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 uh, is that fair? Yeah, yeah, totally fair. Um, has seen a decline in opioid-related deaths by, by half in July wow. of this year compared to its peak and the reason is, is because they have started to move more towards this Dutch model of putting pressure on addicts to quit. They've abandoned the kind of radical harm reduction model. So the good news is that we know we know it works because you can just look at the Netherlands or Portugal or Alberta now and see that there's a solution to it. So I always agree. Yeah, for sure. There's all these definitely risk factors in the United States. We're really quick to I mean, look at like hyperactivity. Um, yeah, I've, I, I'm increasingly of the view that there's just a number of, of you have a bunch of, I mean, I hate to call them psychiatric, but you have a bunch of psychological disorders that result in people not getting enough exercise. You know, like you go hyperactivity. Well, that's a child that hasn't had enough exercise. Yeah, or, yeah. Or even you know, for me, anxiety is just, I need to go for a run. Like, so when do we kind of go? Why is our response to like anxiety always, there has to be a medicine for this, a drug? Why can't it be? Because I'm a high energy person. So I think there's a lot of people that are like high energy people that experience anxiety. Well, that's just because you're not, you're not properly managing, you know, you're not proper, you know, and then there's CBT and there's all these other things that you can do. So for sure, for sure, our propensity, our quickness into yeah. seeking a drug response is part of the problem. Yeah. And I, I have some experience with the medical system in, in Europe, and I do know that if you go to the doctor and you're like, I'm suffering from depression, I'm anxious, I'm too anxious to work, a lot of the times the doctors there will say, well, are you exercising? What's your family like? Are you eating okay? Like, go home and lose like lose some, they're just rougher, right? Lose some weight. Like, they're they're harsh, right? They're not just like, well, here's a pill to fix you, right? Yeah, it's different there. It's interesting. I'm inclined to think that it's because pharmaceutical representatives were educating doctors compared to Europe. Definitely it's part of it. I mean, there's so many different things going on, right? The, you know, there's, it's a libertarianism too. There's a sense in which it's somehow like too coercive to tell people how to change their behaviors. Like it's less coercive to give them a pill than to tell mm -hmm. them to just be like, hey, have you thought about changing your diet or exercising more? Well, it's less it insulting. Feels, it feels moralizing. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It's less insulting. It's like, oh, you might have a chemical imbalance. That's really unfortunate. Here's a fix. That's way less insulting than like 
there's something you might not know that you're doing wrong, right? But I mean, it could be framed in a different way, you know, like we've been taught things wrong, but here are some things I've seen that help other people. You could try those first. Like you don't have to be moralizing when you tell people to exercise more. But yeah, that's like a level of complexity and doctor's appointments no, are short. And, and training. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, I think there are ways to to do it in ways that don't have to be insulting or be perceived yeah. as a criticism. Yeah. You know? I mean, um, yeah, I, I like the way you said that. Some people have really benefited from exercising and, and not eating carbs. Yeah. Would you be you interested could give it in a trying shot. that? Yeah, why don't yeah. Could we try that for a month before we, you know, why don't we try it for a month before? And yeah, I mean, there's just, I yeah. mean, that's also why you need a, you need a proper, and then if you have a proper system, then you have standards of care so that if some, a mom brings in her, her hyperactive child, there's some standards where you're not going to just go give that kid Ritalin. Like you're going to get, maybe you're going to be like, I'd like to see little Jimmy you know, getting a, a run in during the morning and that we kind of reduce the sugar he's he's consuming all day long and see what we get to with that. Because yeah, maybe that's he'll not still insulting. need or maybe he'll need less or something. Yeah. I think it'll change. What do you think? I think there's enough, especially with social media, I think there's enough kickback to some of these things that I think I think a new generation needs to come in and then things will improve. I don't see this going downhill forever. It's already at a bitter, a pretty bad place with number of people on medications and overall health of the society. I can't see it going. That I think it's. I'm hoping it's already kind of reversing. I hope so. I think your dad, you and your dad, have done a real service to this issue. I mean, I think that there's a lot of attention, kind of sensationalism around your lion diet, but I think that. Um, I know for me, it's made a huge difference to reduce my carb intake. And in fact, it's still a struggle. I quit drinking uh, four years ago and it was comparatively easy to managing my diet in part because you have to eat, you don't have to drink alcohol. But I think that this thing of, of and I love carbs. I mean, of course, I, who yeah, doesn't, right? like, me too. So good. like, oh my God, bread. And like, I just, I can go like, but it's like, I was just watching, I was watching Joe Rogan too on this the other day where it's like, he was describing just eating bread, just knocks him out and you turn 50 yeah. as I have. And you're kind of like, I can't believe how, how like, in, how just hammered I get eating bread, <laughs> you know? And so there's things that you guys have intervened in on the culture that I think is super important. You know, the importance of CBT is huge. The importance of talking back to yourself and that you're not just a single self and you've got these other voices and and it's not crazy to have to listen to your wiser voice. You can internalize these voices. For me, exercise has been massive. I've been watching Andrew Huberman taking suggestions from him. He's great. You know, like um, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't been as good about it lately, but just a run, a hard run first thing in the morning, but exercise actually twice a day. So these things, I think, absolutely, I totally agree. I think that they are going to make a big difference because the medical establishment has been, frankly, just downright irresponsible with with its it's dietary recommendations, it's lack of evangelism on exercise. I mean, exercise is like, it also changes what you can eat, right? If you get a really hard workout in. Mm -hmm. This is true. I know, I'm wondering, uh, I mean, I'm completely carbon tolerant, completely, but I'm wondering how much of the carbon tolerance that I think we're seeing in a lot of people, I think you can kind of look at people and be like, well, they shouldn't be eating carbs. Uh, I right. wonder how much of that is, <laughs> 
but like really and like some people more than others um i'm wondering how much of that is caused by lack of exercise like maybe because society stopped exercising hard because i know you see i see these people on on instagram in particular like serious athletes at the gym and like maybe some of them are on steroids but maybe some of them aren't and they're eating carbs and i'm like I don't even understand how that person exists because of how I feel when I eat them. But I mean, they're exercising constantly. And people did used to like walk, you know, even if they had an office job, they did something, right? There wasn't a gym, but that's because they actually did things. I was like, I wonder how much of the carbon tolerance is from just society exercising less too. I mean, I noticed it just when I've stopped, um, I, I we gave up our office, which I had to you know drive and walk slightly to. But I even noticed it just that just eliminating the commute. I think a bunch of people also during COVID they eliminate the commute. They work from home. That's just it's not. It doesn't have to be a lot of calories for it to make a difference. You know. Um, yeah. But certainly, like a hard workout. I've gotten to the point too where it's like you can have like a really hard workout and go too far and be like, okay, my body does need some amount of carbs. You know, but like, oh, for sure it is. You know, plus carbs are so cheap and yeah, they're tasty. everywhere <laughs> and they're so immediately gratifying in a way that proteins can be, but are not quite. So, oh yeah, for sure. Now I was reading, I mean, Nina Takel's, you know, and Gary Tobbs and and the whole Atkins movement was on to this years ago but i think that yeah. um that was always framed as a kind of weight loss issue it then became kind of a health issue but now i just think and i think this is the work you and your father have done that's so important as you guys have helped to highlight and for me personally it's been a big thing highlight right. the ways in which it's also a mental health issue that actually yeah thinking like if i eat too many carbs like i just don't think right yeah like yeah. i have to be a little I like to be a little hungry when I'm writing or working because it actually you get some of that mental clarity. Well, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, the reason I got into diet mainly was uh, because of my mental health. It was just a complete disaster and I couldn't stand it. I was like, I can't not think. I've got things to do. Yeah. I mean, that was so much of stoicism is about the body, you know, and, and it's about the mind and the brain. And we don't think of it this way, but obviously like the brain is a, is an organ, you know, the brain is a physical, it's yeah. a physical organ. And, and like, there's no sense in being, you know, you're, 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 this body, this is part of your, this is part of your body. And so you've got to keep fit. The fitness affects the whole body. And then I also think that that's also, this is some of the nice contribution from Buddhism is that right thinking is important it's important to get your thoughts right and to talk back to the negative thoughts so that's cbt so you can kind of sort of see a picture that i think has come out of both you and your father but then obviously people like joe rogan and andrew huberman and these other important figures um i like this young stoic guy what's his name ryan he's got a new book out i'm going to read um oh, but kind of wait. ryan holiday ryan holiday yeah yeah where you kind of get a picture of, you know, discipline in terms of schedule and daytime routine, eating, exercise, but then thinking, and that these things are all working together for optimal physical and mental health, and that we should think about those things holistically. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I was thinking what exactly it was that set me on kind of a health journey, and it was 
it was desperation not to die from an autoimmune disorder. But it was also something, I don't know if it was the age I got to or how I was raised or what, but something changed in that I decided, it was really I stopped, I decided to stop being a victim. And I never really felt sorry for myself, like having an autoimmune disorder. I never had self-pity, but I did take kind of my own agency away. So when I went to the doctor and, and I was told there's nothing you can do about it, I believed that. And that belief was hindering my ability to heal. And so at, at some point, I think I went through the medical system to a point where I just didn't get help anywhere. And I went to everyone and no one could help me. And I was like, oh, well, there is no help there. What they're doing isn't working. And something like switched. And I was like, I have to do this myself. And then once I decided there wasn't anyone I could go to and I could do it, my, I had to do it myself. I didn't have an option. That's when I started getting better. And I, it's because I started figuring things out. But something needed to switch in my head for me to get to the point that I could actually go out and search for myself because for my entire life I was like well that's not really on me and I wasn't brought up like that at all right at all but um but still it, it was a mind it was a definitely a switch in how I was thinking which I think it can be helpful helpful for people like you if there's a problem in your life you have the ability to fix it like, and you have to go fix it or you're stuck with this problem for your own, your entire life, right? Which is terrible. Yeah. Well, that's right. And also, I mean, I in San Francisco, I describe how, you know, here out of the 60s, we had this really liberating philosophy of, of the human potential movement. It sort of gives rise to the self-help movement. You know, I'm obsessed with Viktor Frankl. He's a character in the book, Man's Search for Meaning. This idea that, that your mentality is something that you can control, that you have some control over your mentality and that if you can control your mentality, then you can control your life. It's the super deeply empowering mentality. And of course, long tradition, self-reliance and the United States. Well, the left responds to it and it gets, they kind of respond to it and they go, that's blaming the victim. That's blaming yeah. people. Um, if you are encouraging people to take responsibility, which is really empowering, you're actually yeah. seeking to punish and blame them. And then that gave rise to all of it, victim ideology, wokeism. And so it's there's a very, I see the reaction to you and your father has been very much from people threatened that you that you guys are basically in trying to empower other people. They're, you're under, you're challenging the control that that the radical left that progressive woke types exercise over large parts of society in convincing them that they're victims of forces beyond their control i mean what could be more disempowering than telling people that you are essentially a victim by nature of your race or experience or position in society and there's nothing you can do about it except support my political agenda it's grossly disempowering and oppressive. And so when folks come along like like you guys and say, oh my gosh, no, there's like there's all there's you can you can take control of your of your diet, of your exercise, of your mentality, of your energy levels, you can get control over your life. That's totally threatening to people that are exercising inappropriate amounts of control over other people. Good. Bravo well, that's guys. thank you. Well, bravo to you too. That's why I wanted to have you on my show. Like I said for a while, um, I did very much enjoy San Francisco. Uh, and your new book, when is it coming out? You said twenty twenty four. 
Yeah, so I have a book coming out next year called The War on Nuclear, Why It Hurts Us All. That's cool. And that's that's kind of like, um, you know, like sometimes it's like the outtakes to your last album. So it's a little bit like it's it's a little bit like a side thing. It's not the the it's going to be an important book, but um, but but for me, there's also this trilogy of books, which is Apocalypse Never for San Francisco and then Progressive Nihilism. The working title is Progressive Nihilism: Why Civilized People Undermine Civilization. Cool. Okay. Well, we'll have to have you back on um, when that comes out. If anybody is interested in following you, where should they go? I mean, Twitter is, I love Twitter right now. So you can find me on Twitter at Schellenberger MD. Those are just my initials. I'm not a doctor, Schellenberger MD, or on Instagram. I actually have just my name, which is great, Schellenberger, or my Substack, which has become the really one of the only places I'm ready for now, just Substack, MichaelSchellenberger.com. Cool. Okay. I will link all those below. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Michaela. What a pleasure to meet you. Yeah. Nice meeting you too.